We are going to continue in our verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of Romans. We've gone as far as verse 14 of Romans chapter 7. So if you'll turn there to the book of Romans, we'll begin reading at verse 14. We'll go through the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John has some Bibles in his hands. He's towards the back. If you're towards the front, we have some on the front platform. We want you to read God's Word with us, to study it, as we're going to finish chapter 7 here this morning. And I know that uh, many of you have expressed to me how the book in Romans has really touched your hearts. Um, this book, uh, as all the books of the Bible, are beneficial and a blessing and profitable. But the book of Romans, as Paul is writing to these Christians here in Rome, he has established to us some important considerations and truths. And that is that we're all sinners as we stand guilty before God. He says in chapter 1 that God will put his wrath upon all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And that is that we're all guilty before him. The world stands guilty before God is the conclusion of that section as we go through chapter 3, verse 19. But then Paul, he begins to give us the wonderful doctrine of justification. You see, the theme of the book of Romans, as you know, is that Paul writes that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And as Paul would then begin to give us the good news that we are justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he tells us that no deeds of the law will justify us. And that word justify, of course, it's a legal term. It literally means just as if I've never sinned. That's the meaning of it. But what it means is that we are declared righteous. And we are declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace, the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God and we need to be established in that you see as Paul is saying to us that we cannot work for our salvation we cannot earn our salvation there are people that we know that that are believers even uh, unbelievers that they think that they're going to go to heavens stand before God on their own merit on their own goodness. I've had people say to me, and perhaps you've had the same thing, that I don't need to come to Jesus. I've been a good person, and, and I have confidence that, that I'll be able to enter into heaven or stand before God on my goodness. And we know that our goodness, there is nothing good in us that what we're going to be told does not declare us righteous. It's only Jesus Christ who went to the cross, died for our sins, rose again. And as we come recognizing the greatest need that we have is to be forgiven, to yield to him as Lord and Savior, to believe in him, then justification comes. It is a free gift. And there are those who will say to you and to me as Christians, standing on the biblical truth of justification, that what do you mean it's a free gift? You have to do something. There's no free lunch, son. And you have to go to our church or you have to worship on this day. Why don't you guys over at Calvary, why don't you worship on the Sabbath day? There are those who will come along and say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And we know as we're going to do a baptism in a couple weeks, it's a commandment of God to be baptized, but it's not an order to be saved. It's a declaration that I am saved. It's identifying with Christ as we went over in chapter 6. So the Bible is very clear that we are justified freely. It means that you cannot purchase or work or earn your salvation. Salvation. And even Paul reiterates it uh, in chapter 5 in this doctrine of justification. He said that uh, it is by the grace, the unmerited of one man, Christ Jesus, that the gift is not like the offense. 
but we come to justification. Verse 16, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. We read in verse 17 that we receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. And then he says in the next verse, one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. And then in chapter 6, if you've been with us in our study, you recall that Paul, he writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. So it is very clear what Romans declares to us, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's the gift of God. Uh, It's not of ourselves, lest any of us boast. It is a free gift coming in faith. He did the work, Jesus. He did the work on the cross. He cried out, it is finished. And when somebody comes along and says, it's not finished, that you have to do something, worship on a certain day, go to that church, you have to do this religious act, then they're saying that, um, that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient for our forgiveness of sin and salvation. Listen, we all just got through Christmas. If I was to give you a gift or you gave me a gift, what if I pulled out my wallet and said, you know, I really should pay you for this? It would be offensive, wouldn't it? So we understand that salvation is a free gift given as we come in faith. But with that said, after the doctrine of what we read of um, justification, then in chapter 6, we've entered into what is called the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification, of course, means being set aside to live for the Lord, to live for him. And God is working in this practical righteousness, a life to live for him. And in our reading of this epistle, Paul addresses the one who perhaps would think at the end of that doctrine of justification in chapter 5, well, Paul writes that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And he doesn't want anyone to think that, well, where grace abounds much more, then I'll go out and live in sin. I'll commit sin. I'll just uh, continue to go out and do whatever I want and continue in sin. And if you have been with us in our study, chapter 6, Paul addresses that by saying, should we continue in sin that grace abounds? He says, no way, certainly not, because we are dead to sin. And we identify with Christ. We live in this newness of life. We reckon it to be so that we should yield our bodies over as an instrument of righteousness. And the conclusion of chapter 6 is this. Either you are a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. So the question that we ask ourselves even this morning as we sit here in honesty of our hearts is who is your master? Really, who's your master? And I think that most of us, if not all of us in this room, we say, Lord, I want you to truly be my master. I want to yield my life over to you. And as we do, as we are a slave to righteousness to him, then righteous fruit is going to be produced, is what Paul writes. But if we are a slave to this world and to sin, you're going to produce fruit, but it's going to be dead fruit. And it's going to be rotten fruit. And you're going to be enslaved to this world. And you're going to be enslaved to Satan, who is the God little g of this world. And you're going to be enslaved and in bondage to that which is going to hurt you. And it's going to harm you. And you're not going to be free. 
Sometimes I hear people say, I want to be free. I'll live any way that I want. Go ahead and you will find yourself being enslaved to the world. And the world is a terrible taskmaster. So these are considerations for us to understand. And not only are we dead to sin, chapter 6, but as we moved into chapter 7, and what we're going to continue to read is that we are dead to the law. And in this section that we're going to read here from verse 14 to the end of the chapter is very important for us to understand because Paul describes this internal struggle that he has that I believe that all of us can have we want to do what is right, but we find that there is this battle that goes on in the flesh. And as we read that, there are a few commentators that will say, well, Paul's just describing this struggle before he was a Christian, before he got saved. And I don't necessarily hold to that. Listen, Paul was an incredible man of faith. He wrote most of the New Testament. He would say to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He would say to Timothy, follow my example, my manner of life. He is one that loved the Lord. He was dedicated to the Lord. He was committed to giving the gospel. I look at Paul's life as, as just absolutely an incredible man of God. But I think that Paul here is describing to us the wrestling that he has as a believer. And this letter, he writes, you know, that. And then he's going, as later on, say to the Philippian believers, he would write, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. There's nowhere that I see in the New Testament when Paul says, well, that was all before. He talks about how he had confidence in the flesh in the book of Philippians as he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. But nowhere does he say, I've reached sinless perfection. I've already attained. I've been perfected. Matter of fact, at the end of his life, he said Christ came to die for sinners in which I am, you know, the, the chief of sinners. And I don't see where Paul writes that I'm attained or perfected, but he knew where the power was to have victory over the flesh. And that will be the focus of chapter 8, which is a wonderful chapter. So we need to keep that in mind in what is being said here in this struggle of chapter 7. We have the word law in chapter 7 that is written 23 times. He writes, I, me, myself, some 47 times in the chapter. There's no mention of the Spirit. And all, you know, of what we see here uh, is that he will lead us to chapter 8 to tell us that we have this dynamic power to live as a Christian, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind this. As we've gone over and made very clear this whole doctrine of justification that is not something that we do or attain. Jesus said, it is finished, as I mentioned to you and often say to you. And I want you to remember this. Never put a question mark where God puts a period. It is finished. What he did on the cross is sufficient for forgiveness and salvation. That it's the power of the gospel that brings salvation to us, to make us a new person in Christ. It's something that we can't do on ourselves. Salvation is the work of God. Keep in mind that sanctification also is a work of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't do this living for the Lord in our own flesh, in our own efforts, in our own striving. And that's what the theme and that's what is being pressed here in this chapter. If you try to live a holy life unto the Lord in the flesh, trying to do it in your own efforts, your own striving, your own energy, you will end up in the mess that is described here in this section of Romans chapter 7. 
that we're going to read. So let's pick up our text again at verse 14 of Romans 7. We read, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Again, this verse, as we read it and consider it, is one of the reasons I believe he doesn't describe himself before he was saved. And that word carnal is an interesting word. Do you realize it is only used in the New Testament for believers? Sometimes people will argue with me, perhaps with you. They'll say, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Well, you need to go back and read the book of Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writing to the Christians there, he says, I, brethren, he uses that term brethren, which means you're a Christian. I could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to carnal. That's our word there, as to babes in Christ. So as he's addressing them, they're babes in Christ. They were not spiritually mature. Back to chapter 7 here, in verse 18, he's going to say that, uh, that in our flesh dwells nothing good. Now again, an unbeliever doesn't think that way. They're all about the flesh. In verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God. Again, as an unbeliever, the unbeliever doesn't believe in the law of God. Now he would boast in the law, but he says, I delight in the law of God. So he's describing himself as a believer that there is this warring of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He says that I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, when we do hear that word carnal, we automatically think of that person who's going out and committing sin and living in a sinful way and involved in worldly pleasures, living immorally. And that's what we automatically think. And when Paul, once again, to remind you, when he was writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's a corrective letter, isn't it? And you go through that letter and you see that Paul addresses that they were boasting in sin that was in the church. He addresses them suing one another. He addresses them as they were there at these love feasts, these potlucks. And as he would address that they were drinking and they were getting drunk and then taking of the Lord's Supper. There was problems that were in the Corinthian church. But what I find interesting is in that corrective letter, the very first thing that he addresses is their divisions that they have. Their spiritual Im- you know, maturity. I, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you're not able to receive it. And you are still carnal, for where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal? So being carnal can be envy and strife and divisions and attitude of the heart. Uh, you're struggling with pride. You're, you know, thinking of, of worldly things. You're trying to do things in your own understanding. So as Paul's writing from Corinth, as he says, I am carnal, Corinth was a very sinful city. But don't think that Paul is talking about going down to the Corinthian nightclub and he's drinking and partying and all of that. So with the Corinthians, you're carnal because of envy, because of strife going on. There are divisions that are going on. You're not able to handle the meat of the word because you're dictated by fleshly thoughts and actions. You're not spiritually mature. With Paul, it was, as we have seen, that he says, I know that the law is important because it told me about covetousness. For over something Paul was coveting. And then also he is describing that Paul says that it is the law and, and sin that deceived me because he was trying to live within his own religiousness. He was trying to live by the law in his own efforts. Remember verse 11. 
that sin deceived me or it lied to me? How did it lie to him? That, listen, sin can be conquered through the law. That I can conquer sin by the law, by rules and regulations, or by religiousness. I will keep it. I will strive to do things. And the flesh wars and wrestles with this. And we all deal with that to some degree. So I do believe that Paul is telling us of something that he was presently dealing with as a Christian. And if we walk after the flesh in carnality, listen, what this chapter is telling us is we won't keep the law. The sin will lie to us. We won't keep the rules and regulations. Oh, we can appear, appear saintly, outwardly religious, but our hearts, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words we speak, our actions, our behaviors. Have you ever thought that if people really knew what was in my mind, what came into my mind, what's in my heart? What if we displayed it up here on the screen here? The things that come into our minds, the things that come into our hearts. And I'll speak for myself. If, if we did that with what comes into my mind at times, what is coming into my life at times, in my heart, it'd be a horror show. It'd be shocking. And I'm thankful that others don't see it, but God sees it. We've already seen that God will judge the secrets of men's heart in chapter 2. Everything is open and naked before the Lord. So he writes that sin deceived me or it lied to me in that I can be victorious over sin through a series of laws or how you can see it in people's lives is they will set a bunch of rules and regulations and build a legal, legalistic system around them. And this will keep me, you know, under the law. This will keep me tight to the law. We got to keep the people under the law or you're going to have a a carnal church, a carnal family, whatever the case may be. Sometimes in Christians, the way that you see it worked out is that you will see Christians that will go from seminar to seminar, to go from conference to conference, from book to book. Listen, hear my heart on this. I am not saying that you shouldn't read a book. We have a bookstore. And the book's there to encourage you, to help you in your walk with the Lord. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to a conference. We're having a one-day conference here. And many of you, you go to conferences, and, and they have blessed you and encouraged you. A woman's conference, a men's conference, a marriage conference. We shouldn't be afraid to go to retreats. So what I'm saying is this, that there are those that are constantly, always looking for that sermon that will give me five steps to Christian living. Uh, here are the secrets to victorious Christian living. Here's ten steps to freedom. And these methods, and a lot of emphasis today is on practice practical living, which there's nothing wrong with that, but we're going to see that Paul's going to come to the conclusion what the real key is for you and for me. And we, if we just have all these methods and all its laws and trying to be holy, and sin will back off. It will back off and continue to do so. And you can think, look how far I've come. People will say, look how far you, you, you are. You're just one step away. You're one chapter away. And then you're going to be holy. And then you're going to be free. And then you're going to be an overcomer. And there are some Christians that their whole Christian life has been going from book to book, 
to conference to conference, to the next deliverance service, and they're doing okay for a while, but then all of a sudden, here comes the crash. And the flesh begins to pull on them. And discouragement sets in because they begin to think that I am no closer to holiness. Uh, I'm a spiritual failure. And you're on this roller coaster ride spiritually because sin deceives us by telling us that it can be defeated by the law. So Paul begins to talk about this struggle. In verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. So here's the internal struggle that Paul talks about. And I think that we can relate to this. We can say, I know what is being declared and what I want to do, what I'm determined to do, but I don't do it. They say that as we find ourselves at the beginning of the year, that uh, most people, like 80% of people, uh, those who study such things, that say that those who made New Year's resolution by the mid-January, they've already broken those resolutions. They've already failed. You know, most of them is, uh, I'm going to go to the gym every day, and I'm going to exercise and get in shape and all this. Um, I'm going to get up early and do that. And most people, 80%, find themselves they don't do that. Or they fall short. You and I as a Christian, maybe we have some very good intentions. Maybe at the beginning of the year, we say, you know, I'm going to read my Bible every single day. I'm going to get on this Bible reading program where I'm going to go through the Bible. And some people keep that. Maybe it's I'm going to pray a certain amount of time during the day. I'm going to make sure I'm in church, you know, this amount of times. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm going to serve in this way. And over time, you realize that you sleep in. What happens when you don't make it to church. You end up, you know, just staying home. What happens when you don't pray for an hour like you wanted to? You were determined to do that. And you see, we can all experience that to one degree or another. And so he says here, what I'm determined to do, I don't do. And that which I hate, that I do. I'm not going to go to this place because it just stumbles me and we end up going to it. I'm not going to get involved in the gossip at work or in trashing the boss or whatever, but I end up saying something. I end up getting involved in it. I'm not going to say words that are corrupt and, and putting people down. I'm not going to laugh at the crude jokes. And, and we end up failing in different ways, and we say, I hate that. But verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. So as we go through this passage of Romans, Paul states that sin dwells in us. Verse 14, we read in verse 17. We're going to read it again in verse 20, referring to the old nature. And then in chapter 8, Paul will write and explain to us how the Holy Spirit in us enables us to have victory in our lives, something that the law cannot do. And again, notice all the personal pronouns here, I, I, I. How can I stop doing sinful, bad things? How can I do anything good? I struggle. I cannot do the things that are good. I do the bad things that I don't want to do. And of course, he's talking about living after the flesh rather than walking in the spirit. 
The law cannot enable me to do good. That's why Paul says, listen, you're dead to the law. And you're free to be joined to another at the beginning of the chapter to be married to another. He uses the illustration of marriage. As long as a woman is married to her husband, she's bound by it by law. But if he dies, then she's free to marry another without being an adulteress. She's free to be joined to another. And so it is with you. You're dead to the law, so you can be free to be joined to another. That is Jesus Christ. And that's the key here. The law cannot enable me to do good. The problem is not the law itself. The law is good, and the law is holy, and the law is God's standard. I need to know the law. The problem is me. The problem is me. And it's impossible for me to keep the law because I have a sinful nature that rebels against the law. And the Lord declares to us that in our flesh dwells no good Thing. Now, when I first read this, when I was a young Christian, I kind of struggled with this. And Christians today can struggle with it. When I was growing up, you know, like most of us, I had the mindset of, you got to tough it out, man. You got to be determined. You got to make it happen. You got to grit your teeth. You got to eat glass, you know. You got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And what do you mean that in my flesh there is no good thing? Because I can think in my flesh there's got to be something that is good. There is something good in me, isn't there? In the book of Philippians, Paul would write that I have no confidence in the flesh. If anybody could have had confidence in the flesh, it was me. And he talks about how he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, a tribe of Benjamin, and circumcised on the eighth day, concerning the law blameless and all of this. He says, have no confidence in the flesh. And, and I think, am I really that bad? You see, the popular message today in the churches that's drawing a lot of attention in huge crowds is you're not that bad. You need to say to yourself, you're not that bad. You need to tap into the champion within you. You know, the best of you. And it's all about you. And as I hear those messages that are attracting a lot of people, I think, oh my, you need to go back and read Romans chapter 7. That in our flesh dwells nothing good. Do you know what the, uh, the Greek word for nothing means? It means nothing. Zippo. The Lord says, haven't I told you? It's recorded in the word for you. So why are you trying to be good in the energy of your flesh? Because there's no good thing that is there. And culture tells us, and much of the church is telling us, that you need to focus on yourself. You need to love yourself. You need to live for yourself. Tap into the power of yourself. And I've said this before. I'll go ahead and say it again. I think the problem with a lot of people is they're so full of themselves. And the Bible comes along and says, you need to die to self. Pick up your cross and follow him. The Bible is very clear that we're to humble ourselves and submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That we're to surrender ourselves to him. And great is the day when we do that. But in verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, and, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We see that once again in verse 20. 
So Paul's talking about his carnal state. I, I don't want to be sinful, but sin dwells in me. C.S. Lewis wrote, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. Paul telling us his problem isn't the knowledge of sin. He knows what's right. He, he knows what's evil. He knows the law. He agrees with the law. The law is good. It's God's standard. But once again, there is sin that dwells in me, the sin nature. And John would say the same thing as we went over his epistle last summer, that he would write that I write these things to you that you do not sin. He's not saying that we will never you know, sin again, but we're not going to continue in sin, in a lifestyle of sin. And he says in that first chapter of his epistle in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, that is a sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because there are those, the Gnostics, that were saying that, hey, you know, we're flesh and, and so we have a sinful, carnal, fleshly nature. And so just go out and sin. You can't help it. It's okay. There's no problem with it. And John is saying, no, it's not okay. And if we do sin, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God for that. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Paul, he knows what is right. The problem isn't desire. He wants to do what is right. The problem, listen, is power. It's a lack of power. How to perform what is good, I do not find. And then Paul later will address how we have that power to do what is right when we move into chapter 8. And that's why chapter 8 is considered one of the glorious, wonderful chapters of all of the New Testament. You see, I can tell you what to do, but I can't give you the power to do it. God's word, which is truth, tells you what to do. And here's the neat thing. He's going to give you the power to do it. And he's not going to tell you something to do in his word, his commandments, his precepts, his truth that is given to you, that he's not going to empower you to do it. And it's the power of God himself living in our hearts, the power of the Holy Spirit as we yield to him. But we still have this struggle that happens. And here Paul describing it, he says, I find, verse 21, then a law that evil is present with me. In other words, the law reveals to me that I'm a sinner. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's a struggle that, you know, can go with, on with us in the inner man, loves the things of God. I think we say that, don't we? And in my mind, I want to follow the law of God. I want to walk in his ways. I want to keep his commandments. That's my determination, but my flesh it rebels. Jesus said to the disciples that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. My eyes are prone to look at things I shouldn't. My ears to hear things and strain to hear you know, something I shouldn't. My mouth to speak things that are corrupt. There's this struggle in this war between the inner man and the flesh. And then Paul brings it to a climax as he describes this struggling here. In verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I picture Paul writing this in, in large letters. O wretched man that I am. As Paul has been describing his own struggle of doing what is good and right in his own efforts, he cries out, wretched man that I am. And it speaks of being wretched, 
through the exhaustion of hard labor, or he is saying, I'm worn out from the unsuccessful efforts to please God under the principle of the law. He is overwhelmed with the sense of his own powerlessness and sinfulness. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am. But here's something as you underline this in your Bible. I think it's a good idea to do that. Is this is the place that we need to come to. We need to come to this place of, oh, wretched man that I am. Because it does a couple things. When we come to this place, the Pharisee in us dies. When we say, oh, wretched man that I am, you won't be looking down at everybody else. And look, I'm more holy and more righteous and better. But rather, this is a place of humility in a place of submission, in a place of yielding, and it is a place of surrender. That's where we need to come to. You know, I lived my early days as a Christian thinking I've got to suck it up and i got to man up. And there are times where the Lord says, you need to man up, but he helps me to do it. And I've come to understand that trying to be good or trying to be the Christian that God wants me to has to be a work that he's doing in me because I fall so short. And when we come to this place of saying, Lord, I surrender to you to walk in the spirit, you say, what does it mean to walk in the spirit? You come back and we're going to talk about that quite exclusively in the next few weeks. But walking in the spirit means that you're abiding in Christ. You'll yield it to him. You're walking with him. You are dependent on him. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I want us to take note here, and this is really important. As Paul referring himself repeatedly in the unsuccessful struggle against sin, he says, who shall deliver me? Not what shall deliver me. Or how shall I deliver myself? You see, today Christians can focus on how can I deliver myself? Again, the law is good. Practical things that we learn from the scriptures, very, very good. But it is based on who. It's who will deliver me. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. It's who. Paul, at the end of his life, writing Timothy, he says, I know whom I have believed. He didn't just say, I know what I have believed. He knew what he believed. He wrote most of the New Testament. But he says, I know whom I have believed. And you and I, we know who we have believed. It is him. The flesh will always cry out, how, how, how. And God answers back by saying, it's who. That's the key. That you yield to him. Remember, as I read in the scriptures in the beginning of David, as he's writing that psalm to the Lord, he said, as the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my strong tower. He's the one that makes me strong. He's my light. He's everything to me. He's the one that that makes me leap over a wall. He gives us the strength to do what we need to do. Yes, we need to know how. We need to know the word of God. You have been here long enough. You know that. That we're going to be faithful to the scriptures. That we're going to be faithful to what is declared how we are to live. I don't care what culture says. But the strength to do it is him. 
and looking outside of ourselves and procedures and our own efforts to Jesus, he's the one who can deliver us. As Paul answers that, the question here in verse 25 as we finish, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And Paul will expand on this theme in the next chapter and will show us how glorious it is to have that personal, close relationship with him, walking in the spirit. It's all about him. We have victory through him and being yielded to him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for what has been given to us in Romans chapter 7. Some look at it as, as being negative and down and But Lord, we need to know this chapter to understand that, Lord, that there is a life of walking in the Spirit and not trying to muster it up ourselves to live for you. And I pray that we would all walk out of here being free, that we would walk out of here just with a desire to walk in a higher love that is the law of love, being devoted to you, And when we walk in the law of love, it's not that I have to do it, it's I get to do it. It's not that I got to do it, it's I want to do it. And Lord, you will enable me, and there's no commandment given to me that you won't enable me to do what you've called me to do. And Lord, in the struggles that we have in life, then we return to you to be our help. Lord, to empower us. To know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, when we do sin. But Lord, to know that we don't have to be in bondage to sin. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, first of all, that you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus for salvation. You need to be justified first before sanctification takes place. It's not about being religious. It's about relationship. And recognizing that, first of all, your greatest need is to be forgiven. It's the greatest need of any man or any woman. And that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins personally. He bore the iniquity of us all upon himself. And that's your iniquities and sin and transgressions. And then he cried out, it is finished as he is, Romans tells us, the propitiation, the satisfaction from a righteous God of the righteous requirement of sinful man. He satisfied the requirement for sin by his death on the cross and making atonement. He's the only one that did that. No one else died for you. And he was put into a grave and he rose again. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And he validated that he is truly Lord and the Son of God and he sits at the right hand of the Father and the invitation is always to come that he is truly Lord and he is your salvation. There is none other. You can't be saved by trying to be good in your own efforts. You can't be saved by a church or a pastor or if you grew up in a home, your parents were Christians. It's a decision that you have to make. Will you come to Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation? There's none other. No other sacrifice for sin. Only Jesus. He loves you.
He's calling you. And you can come right now, right where you're sitting. You can pray in your heart that Jesus said, come. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again. You're alive, speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning, this newness of life. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. Thank you for bringing me here and bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name. And listen, while we're being respectful, because 